It was the first time in my life I had ever felt love. Think about it. I love my wife as deeply as I could and my children too. I felt such deep emotion the first time I did MDMA. I realized I had never actually felt love before. Not really. You know, it's like, it's like if you've never had good pizza, you've only had like Pizza Hut and then you go have good pizza. You're like, I've never eaten pizza before. This is phenomenal. Same thing. Except obviously much more intense. Dude, that whole session was just like, it was such a wake up in so many ways. I didn't even get a whole lot of, looking back now, I can see, I didn't get a lot of emotional work done because it was just like, oh my God, what have I been missing? There are few people in this world who are harder to summarize in a podcast opening than our guest today. The person we are interviewing is an entrepreneur who has helped more people write their stories than just about anyone else through his company, Scribe Media. That includes me, by the way, after he helped me publish The Trip Journal. He's also an author, having written four New York Times bestsellers, three of which hit number one, which have sold over 4.5 million copies worldwide. He's credited with being the originator of the literary genre fratire and is only the fourth writer, along with Malcolm Gladwell, Renee Brown, and Michael Lewis, to have three books on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list at one time. He was also nominated to the Time Magazine 100 Most Influential list in 2009. He received his BA from the University of Chicago in 1998 and his JD from Duke Law School in 2001. He currently lives in Austin, Texas with his wife, Veronica, and four children. His name is Tucker Max. He's also an advisor to me and is my friend. That may be an odd comment to make at the end of this introduction, but there's a reason for that comment. So Tucker, thanks so much for joining me today and welcome to Field Tripping. Thanks for having me, man. I have to say having you on the podcast is special for me in some ways. Even though some may judge me for this, in my mid-20s, I was a huge fan of your books. So it was actually pretty special to me when you became the first person I reached out to about creating a podcast in the first place, which coincidentally was on February 14th, Valentine's Day of all days in 2020, to validate whether anyone would be interested in listening to me talk on a podcast. You responded to my email by saying, why not make the podcast something that has a bigger splash appeal? Bring on celebs or other noteworthy people to talk openly about their psychedelic experiences and what they were like. Make it the place where people can talk openly about stuff that sounds totally nuts. Following up with a subsequent email, you said, fuck, never mind. That is the idea. I completely misread your email. So yeah, great idea. That was actually huge for me, man. Uh, so thank you. I want to start by thanking you for that and all the guidance you've given over the last couple of years, actually. <laughs> Happy to help, man. It's been it's been awesome to watch your uh, your transition and transformation. It's funny though, February 14, 2020, like that was a different world. Literally a very different world than what we live in now. <laughs> I know it, it's crazy. And I, I do want to talk about that. Um, but let, maybe let's start with a little bit of a chronology. So let's start with you. You were one of the first people to come out in a big way, being open about psychedelics and how they helped you. But before you started working with psychedelics, you said you spent six years doing various kinds of psychoanalysis, et cetera. Uh, From the lens of my 25-year-old self, a guy like Tucker Max would never do therapy in the first place. So, you know, what started you on the road to trying therapy at all, you know, to be quite honest? Um, I tried everything else first and none of it worked. And I was still suffering immensely. And so it's like, okay. Like, I mean, like, I, I, I'm being a little trite, but it's really true. It's like, um, so let's start 25, me at 25. I had just been fired from uh, my law firm job in two and a half weeks. Then I got fired by my dad from the family business uh, in six months. And so, which was an improvement, but still not, not much of one. I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, I was kind of uh, in a funk and I've been writing emails to my friends and my, one of my friends was like, look, this is the funniest thing I've ever read. You should be an author. And I'm like, uh, you know, a writer. And I'm like, I'm not a bitch. Only writers, only bitches are writers. And he's like, well, maybe you are. <laughs> so you failed at everything else. And so, you know, I, I long, long story, tried to get published. No one wanted to publish me, put myself up on a website. It blew up. Publishers all came back. Uh, and then like, it started getting momentum, right? And you know, I mean, like you've done lots of successful things, so you know how it works. Like when you're poor and broken, anonymous and unsuccessful, you you imagine a level of success and fame or whatever where it's like, oh, if I could just get there, right? And I rocketed through whatever I imagined 
you know, sometime in probably 08 or 09. And then, you know, by uh, 2010, 2011, I was so far beyond anything I ever imagined I needed to get to to be happy. Don't get me wrong. Being rich and famous is way, way better than being broke and anonymous. But it's only like 10% better, right? And it's like not that much better. It means cool to have money. Like that really does help a lot. I'm not going to pretend like it doesn't, but um, it doesn't solve all your problems. Like once you've kind of bought, oh, I I never had this as a kid. You bought 20 of them and you you go through that phase. Then it's like, okay, having money is nice, but there's, it's, it's nowhere near the solution I thought I would be. Well, then I was like, well, I'll fix the rest of my life. I got in, you know, amazing shape and six pack and, you know, financially and like everything in my life was perfect. The external uh, life was perfect. You know, maybe two, 3% happier. <laughs> and then it's like, uh, at some point, I like, I just realized, okay, if everything in my life is perfect as I could ever want or imagine, and I'm still not very happy, the only thing left is me, right? It's got to be inside of me. There's got to be something with me. It took months, man. I had uh, like the first therapist I was supposed to call, like I had a name and number on the table for I don't know, six months before I called her, she sucked. And so uh, I had to go find a bunch of, I think I went to 20 therapists before I found one that was good, that really connected with me. And then it was, I got serious. Like I, there's a lot of different types of talk therapy, IFS and all that. I did psychoanalysis, which is, you know, pretty serious. And uh, I went like four times a week for four years and it was great. It really helped me understand my mind and understand my emotions and understand, kind of see the story and see the patterns and see uh, why I was doing things. Four years, and then I, I paired it with meditation towards the end, uh, which was which helped a lot. Like I couldn't, it was hard to do it for a long time for me, but about 20 minutes a day, I got to a, a, a much better spot. Like I was probably 10% more happier. Right. So it's like, okay, I'm, I'm 25% beyond where I was when I was like poor, broke, depressed. But like at that point, I had met my wife, had a kid, um, maybe a second on the way. And like, and I'm still married, amazing woman. Uh, I still have my kids. <laughs> I haven't <laughs> traded them in for new ones. So like, but I was still, it was, it was funny, man. It was still, it still felt like something was missing. Like I was not fixed. I was not healed. I was not where I could be, however you want to phrase it, but I didn't know what to do. Like I, like it was clear therapy had run its course. I, I stopped. And then there was like a period where I, I kind of just didn't know what to do. Then, then I found psychedelic. Before we go down that path, let's, let's go back a little bit, which is like the Tucker Max I know uh, is a guy I'd be like, that guy would never fucking go to law school. Like that is not a lawyer kind of guy. But I mean, I know you over the last five years and I know you post that adventure. Like, you know, can, can you go all the way back? Be like, what was, the, what was it like growing up? What took you on the path to law school? Because I, I it's a path that I shared, right? And then you clearly got off because you got fired in two and a half weeks. Why did you get fired? You know, did do you look, did you then look at that as like the best thing that ever happened to you? Or at the time, did that suck? And with like retrospect, is it looking good? Like, take me through all of that. All the failures in my life fit squarely in the cliche of, like the spiritual, you know, the spiritual cliche that, that like uh, what feels horrible now will feel like heaven later, you know, like all these things are happening for you, not to you, you know, when God closes the door, he opens a window, whatever. Yeah. Every failure in my life, a hundred percent. It's so squarely. It is at the time I thought being fired was like pretty bad. Now I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> like, thank God. And like, pick any failure in my life. And I'm like, oh, thank God that happened. Like almost to the point where I don't do it, but it's like, I almost think like, man, I should fail more stuff. Like, not that I don't fail, I fail a lot, but it's like, man, I need to do something else. Like, cause every single one ends up being amazing. Like they're always awful to go through and then amazing later looking back in retrospect, you know? Totally. What, what got you fired from the law firm after two and a half weeks? So this is actually in, I hope this is a beer in hell. Um, uh, basically, <laughs> I'm so dumb. 
So the senior, like the senior female partner at the firm in the trademark division, right? She was like, like she had a big deal. This is the law firm that represents like Google and Facebook, Fenwick and West. She propositioned me and I turned her down and then told everybody, like, it is so dumb. If I had slept with her, I'd have been bulletproof. If I had shut the hell up, I'd have been bulletproof. I did the one thing you can't do. <laughs> Oh man, it was so, the whole situation, literally the whole situation was so preposterous. And then I was so dumb. Like I like literally went and told all kinds, like I think I told like, uh, you know, you get assigned to lawyers, like your mentor. I told my mentor, I'm like, oh, you're not going to believe what happened last night. And she was like, oh my God, what is, <laughs> so it, um, you know, we had to go from there. Right. And, and then what got you fired from your, that, that was again, more of my personal jackassery. So I got, you know, my dad owned like five, six restaurants at the time. And my thought was, I didn't really, even though I kind of grew up in the restaurant business, it was never a thing I necessarily wanted to do. But I'm like, he's got great concepts. We could totally scale these. Like this would be amazing. The next PF Chang's, the next cheesecake, et cetera. And so I got to the, and my dad seemed like he was on board. I got, I, you know, I got there and like he was surrounded. I sh- this should have been the reddest of red flags. But I, again, I was dumb at the time. Everyone around him was a psychophanic ass kisser who sucked at their jobs. And a lot of them were thieves. And so I was like, oh, why would my dad didn't know he has all these people around him. So I, I, like I'm going to fire them and then like uh, bring in good people and we'll scale the company. And I told them I was going to do this. Well. Turns out there's a reason my dad hired these people and kept them. And um, they were much better at understanding my father in office politics than I was. And they closed ranks and got my own father to fire me from the family business. Uh, all right. So you got you got fired from the, the family business. And and uh, so you're, you're broke. You're depressed. You write a book. Uh, it takes off. And, uh, you know, fast forward, you're fine. Like, Hey, you got money, you got fame, but you're really not that much happier than you were when you were broke, broke and, uh, and depressed. You go into therapy and psychoanalysis. What did you learn about yourself through that process? I know it was, you, you went through it and then you kind of hit the end of it, but what did you find out about yourself in that process that, uh, opened your eyes and at least made you the 10% happier that, that it did? That's actually a great question. I'm not sure anyone's ever asked me specifically what I learned in psychoanalysis. I went from being unconsciously pushed and guided by my emotions and things that happened in my life to consciously understanding them. I think that's a big, it's like I was wandering around a place without a map and now I had a map Um, and, and really understood Oh, a big reason why you know I struggle or I, I really want to succeed might have something to do with how I feel about myself, and that might have something to do with how my parents and uh, thought about themselves and how they treated me, and like, things that like that if you've done therapy seem obvious, and if you haven't, like it's not even like they're new. It's just I had never. I it's very hard to put that analysis on yourself, right? Like to 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 really look at yourself in that way. And my therapist, and I'd, I'd been, you know, various things, but like, I was always smarter than all my therapists. I finally found a therapist who was at least as smart as me, if not smarter, and, and was resistant to my bullshit. So like, I couldn't, you know, like make therapy about her instead of about me or something. And so um, she was very good for me. And it helped me kind of see a lot of my patterns and kind of wake up to who I was and how I was wake up to the fact that I was having a lot of these emotions, you know? So that therapy helped you kind of identify your patterns and you don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but I think one of the things that's helpful, at least has been helpful for me is hearing other people being like, oh, these were my patterns and I see where this this came from. Uh, Because a lot of us share the same story, especially like entrepreneurial men, you know, we... We we pick this path for for a reason, and it's usually a very similar kind of narrative. Do you mind sharing what some of those patterns you kind of became aware of, and what your emotional drivers were up to that point? Um, or yeah, so a big one was narcissism. Like, why was I? I mean, I I write I wrote about my narcissism, right? So like, you know, my therapist is funny. When I first showed up, she's like, "Listen, you're not really you're not a serious narcissist." She's like, "No serious narcissist would call himself a narcissist," and so it was like. Okay, great. And so like understanding 
why would someone be that way? And then first, understanding like what really is narcissism, narcissism? Why does it show up? What's it a defense for, right? And then unpack. And so she, she, uh, what analysis was good for me because at the time I was very, very left brain, very analytical, very logical, very much wanted to understand in a linear way, whatever I was trying to understand. And so she would, she helped me understand like, it was almost a class in psychology, but then she would turn the lens on me, right? So once she really explained narcissism and how it works and how it develops, and then she's like, okay, how do you think this might apply to you? And then of course my defenses would come up and, and then she would just, she was so patient too. She was really good. She would just be like, okay, like I'd be like, wow, this isn't true because of this. And then she'd just, just ask little questions and little questions, little questions until like kind of forced me to dislodge all the BS in my head and then really help me see as an example, what my narcissistic behavior, where I was narcissistic and where I wasn't, what that behavior was probably a defense to and what it wasn't, where it showed up in my childhood, where it showed up in my parents and kind of see all the connections with those things. Does that make sense? Totally. And, and can you answer that? Like what, what, how, how is narcissism defined? How did it get expressed through you? How did it show up in your childhood? All, all that kind of stuff. Um, Cause I think it's helpful for people to hear, hear like the, the actual details of it. A lot of people like to talk about high level of like, yeah, I identified this, but then it's like the meat of it, what happened, you know, uh, along the way often doesn't get talked about. So again, it's, it's as much as you want to share, but I, I do think it's important. In the, in the broadest sense, narcissism is essentially the belief or the, 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 it's less of a belief and it's more of a, 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 a it's experiencing others as only reflections of you, right? As only like objects in your universe and not, not other people. Like you aren't a person. If I'm, a, if I'm really extremely narcissist, you aren't a person to me. You're just a way for me to feel better about myself. Like the term narcissistic supply, right? And so in, in a very simplistic explanation, a lot of people think it means like, oh, look at me you know, attention seeking, that kind of stuff. And that can be an expression of, of narcissism, but there are plenty of other ways to express. For example, um, a belief system that is riddled with narcissists is like wokeism, like people who are very, very, oh, like I got to work. These, these people are not like, not someone saying they're oppressed, like these other people are oppressed and this and that, that can be an expression of narcissism. Narcissism can hijack let's say uh, religion, any, which wokeism is a form of whatever, but like it can hijack belief systems. And then you use that. It uses that belief system to make everything about them and getting attention for them. Even if it's not them getting attention. Right. Whereas where I was writing, I was like me, it was me. Like, look at me, not look at, you know, look at this God or look at this oppressed group or look at this, uh, whatever. Right. She kind of helped me see that. Right. And then Narcissism, the, the, generally speaking, the reason it develops in people is as a defense uh, to neglect, right? Like a defense is usually a psychological defense, meaning a way to help me deal with the pain of an injury, a wound, right? And my parents, you know, uh, were extremely neglectful. Like they were emotionally emotionally neglectful, not physically. Like I had clothes and shoes and food. No one beat me. No one sexually assaulted me. Like, like the conventional narratives of abuse in America uh, tend to be physical abuse, which is of course abuse, but there is a whole other forms of abuse, um, psychological abuse. But even when people think about psychological abuse, they think of yelling, um, which I, my grandmother, my mom's mom was a yeller, but my parents, I guess my mom was, my dad was not. Uh, I had definitely had some of that, but the main driver of abuse in my life, the main abuse of wound in my life was neglect. My parents just were not, my, they were not around. Uh, uh, physically, they were often not around. My mother was literally a flight attendant for Pan Am. And she like flew international routes and be gone for two weeks. Like she had me with babysitters and they were all super nice people. Like none of them, at least that I can remember, and I've done enough psychedelics where if anything happened, I'm pretty sure it would have come up. 
but none of them did anything to me horrible or whatever. Um, in fact, the ones I remember were super nice. So like, but my mom wasn't there. And then my dad, they were divorced in a year and a half. I was a year and a half. So like, he was literally not there. And he was not like, you know, you could be divorced and still be very much in your kid's life. My dad was not one of those. So uh, they were physically not there, but then also emotionally. When my mom was there physically, she was not at all emotionally attuned to me, right? And, and not because like, she's like, oh, fuck this. I'm perfectly emotionally adjusted, but fuck this little kid. I'm not going to give him anything. No, she, she had all kinds of her own emotional issues that she was not dealing with or couldn't or wouldn't deal with. So she probably gave me everything she had. She just, she was pouring from an empty cup. So my experience as a kid was extremely emotionally bereft, right? Of especially of love, affection, that kind of stuff. Uh, in fact, the, the, the best memories I have in that regard are actually from my godparents. My godparents were like, I had a relationship with my godparents the way most people do with like a great grand set of grandparents. And so I, I joke that the only reason I'm not a sociopath is because I had those uh, Bill and White in my life because they loved me and I felt that from them. Uh, and without them, man, I don't know. I'd probably be working at Goldman Sachs, super rich, destroying the world right now or something. For real. Like I'd be horrible. <laughs> be a horrible person. Once I kind of, I, I got that, then the next step is really understanding, oh, I am this way because of the, this happened. My narcissism is defense. Uh, right. And then, uh, okay. That's, that, that's what happened. That's why this developed. I get it. The next step is feeling that, but psychoanalysis is not good at that. Uh, psychoanalysis is very good at like giving you the map, but it's not very good at leading you through the territory, right? Like the map is the understanding. The territory is walking it, the emotion. That's what psychedelics help with. Yeah, oh, that's exactly where I was going to go. I mean, you and I share very, very similar patterns in some ways. It's funny because it's like you look at the way you talk and how you present to the world and the way I talk and present to the world and you say, these guys don't have very much in common. It's like, yes, they're successful white men, but like otherwise our stories don't look very similar. But if you actually start to pick it apart, they're very similar, very similar, very similar yeah. in so many ways. So, so first of all, let me thank you for sharing that. Like it's incredibly vulnerable to share that. And, and like, you know, I, there's probably millions and millions of people who probably think you're a giant asshole based on the writings that you've done in the past. And I just really want to stop and be like, stop and listen, like listen to what Tucker is saying right now. Cause it's really important. And for Tucker to stick his neck out and share this kind of stuff is not something you'd expect from uh, the guy who wrote, I hope they serve beer in hell. So I, I want to stop and, and thank you for the vulnerability and honesty behind that. Thank you, dude. Uh, I, I appreciate that. I will tell you, though, and, and I'm sure you know this, sharing vulnerable things from a healed state is actually really easy. Getting to a healed state is really <laughs> hard. Like, that's really hard. Like, you know, reckon, the analysis part of all of this and then feeling the emotions were really hard. But now that I've, it's like I've walked through that fire and, I, and I'm, I'm done with it. So it's like, it, it is... Very, very easy for me. I'm happy to share it actually now. It's like, no problem. You know, especially if it can help others, you know, kind of see their own stuff and the journey ahead of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think you said to me once, like, speak from uh, scars, not from wounds or something along those lines. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and that's exactly yes, it. It's very easy to speak from scars for me, at least. Well, from wounds is very hard. Yeah. Like, I, I get why people don't share this when it's raw, you know? Sure. Sure. So, so take us into psychedelics. So you go through the psychoanalysis and you're hundred percent right. Psychoanalysis, like by the very definition of analysis, it's logical. It's, it's reason driven. It's not emotionally attuned because emotion and logic don't overlap. I mean, they can overlap, but they transcend each other. Um, and that's where I think psychedelics have so much potency for so many people exactly like you and I, but, but take me through that experience. So psycho, psychoanalysis is done. And like when, when this first crosses your radar, are you like, that's fucking ridiculous? Or like, I'm intrigued. Like take, take us through all of that. So I stopped psychoanalysis. It would have been 15 or 16, 2015 or 2016. I stopped. Uh, I met my wife in 13. So um, I think it was 15 or 16. So there was about a two to three year period there where I didn't have a specific modality that I was really using. Other, like I was doing a lot of parts of integration, 
you know, like self-care. I was really kind of getting into self-care and really understanding what self-care looked like and what it meant, um, you know, uh, and, and stuff like that. Because most people had no idea, myself included at that period. Uh, you know, not self-care as indulgence. Self-care as a daily, weekly life practice where I am figure out what are the things that I want and need and then I put those in my life. Right, that are refreshing and nourishing, and whether it's as simple as you know, like uh, I'm going to eat healthy, or it's you know sauna, or it's um, meditation, or it's walking, or journaling, or living in nature, whatever. So I, I, I was slowly working on those things. You know, I had a son, man, and my, my first child, my bishop, my son, was really rough on me. I'll tell you why. Not because anything he did. Like, uh, uh, well. My wife and I had a kid, like we were new parents, like we didn't know. I called her mom. I'm like, you need to move here and help us. And thank God her mom did and was amazing and a lifesaver. And and like, you know, the joke about like uh, mother-in-law, I get along great with my mother-in-law. She's fantastic. So in terms of childcare, it was easy. But you know, people always say, oh, your kids are going to teach you so much. Before I was a parent, I'm like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Like the kid's three. How, what's he going to teach me? Trigonometry? Shut up, you idiot. Like he, he can't teach me anything. And there's a level at which I was right. What I didn't understand is that people were saying it imprecisely. What they meant was you, your child is going to be a mirror for you of the, often of the worst parts of you, but the best and worst parts of you. And if you're willing to look at that mirror, you will learn a lot about yourself. That's totally accurate. But no one said it like that. They're taking, it's going to teach you a lot. What's it going to teach me? Wheels on the bus? Like, And before he even as an infant, and I'll tell you why, because here he was, uh, this little baby, a boy who had his mother and his grandmother there, who were both amazing, wonderful women who just showered this baby with love and attention and doting affection, as it should be. They were doing their jobs and they were doing their jobs incredibly. That was so hard for me. Right? I wasn't envious of the kid, but what it brought up in me is what I didn't get. Right? I didn't have women around me other than my mother or my godmother who, who did that for me. Right? And it was like it brought up a depth to my mother wound that I, I thought I had dealt with because I'd, I'd been in psychoanalysis. I did all the work. And I knew what the wound was. But it's like, it's like oh, I got a cut here and recognize it. And they're just like, okay. <laughs> like I hadn't actually done anything with a cut. I just recognized I had a cut and it was bleeding. I just didn't, I didn't actually suture it at all. Um, and so that was really rough. And then I remember at the time, I was, you know, I, I got to be friends with Aubrey Marcus and he would always come over. He came over to the house for dinner a bunch. This was like, you know, eight years ago, whatever. So like he's evolved and grown so much since then. But he was, I think, pretty newly into ayahuasca. And just would not shut the hell up about ayahuasca. He just ayahuasca this and ayahuasca that, and he like literally, I'd be like, "Oh man, like I think I burnt the chicken." He's like, "Ayahuasca could help with that." I'm like, "Get get out of my house, Aubrey!" Um, uh, like one of those Bitcoiners, like Bitcoin solves that. He was Aya solves that for everything. And so, like, uh, even though I had friends like Tim Ferriss would tell me, "Yeah, you might want to check this stuff out," you know, he's talked about his use now publicly. Uh, I, was, I heard them, but I like I I couldn't hear it, right. And then like you know like I knew Aubrey. Aubrey's life was messed up at at the time, very messed up. And so I was like, Nah, man, I'm not doing this. is This is nonsense. But then uh, Anne Other, who wrote the book Trust, Surrender, Receive, uh, she's a, a pretty famous guide, MDMA guide in the community. Uh, she came to us to do a book. My company, Scribe Media. And then one of the people in my company who worked with Ann on the book went to New York and did a session. And I saw the change in him. And I was like, that's it. That is what I want. And yeah, he wasn't pushing on me or anything. He's just like, he just showed up and he just, he was a different person in the best possible way. Same dude, different energy. So I set something up, went and visited Ann. I wrote, I wrote about this on, on TuckerMax.com on my site. You can, my first two MDMA journeys. It was so transformative and life-changing. And I got it. Like immediately the medicine hit and I was like, oh my God. Like at this point, at that, by that point I had a second kid. And, and we had literally found out three days before that my third was on the way. So my wife was there with me and said so she was, you know, a week pregnant 
with our third kid, I had two kids. I felt it was the first time in my life I had ever felt love. Think about it. I love my wife as deeply as I could and my children too. I felt such deep emotion the first time I did MDMA. I realized I had never actually felt love before. Not really. You know, it's like, it's like if you've never had good pizza, you've only had like Pizza Hut and then you go have good pizza. You're like, I've never eaten pizza before. This is phenomenal. Same thing. Except obviously much more intense. Dude, that whole session was just like, it was such a wake up in so many ways. I didn't even get a whole lot of, looking back now, I can see, I didn't get a lot of emotional work done because it was just like, oh my God, what have I been missing? In short, what happens to heavily neglected children? There's a, you can read about this in Bessel van der Kolk's work and Peter Levine's work. Uh, the ACE score, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Studies, like a mass, one of the only great studies in, in psycho, psychology that's truly been replicated and actually is true, that showed that neglect is probably the most harmful trauma for children, right? That Not that sexual and physical abuse aren't bad. They're definitely bad. But the worst results are shown in kids that are neglected. Right. And obviously, if you get all the trauma, then it's the worst. But uh, physical sexual abuse without neglect, those kids do not great, but way better than kids who are just neglected without the other stuff, which was a shock to me. But then I finally got it because what neglect does is it shuts off your your feeling part of your body and your, your brain. And I'm explaining it very simplistically. And MDMA turned it on. At first, it was great. It's like, oh, my God, there's all these amazing emotions. Like, I didn't actually know what it meant to be happy. I was crying, telling my wife I loved her, all this crazy. And I meant, it, I, I meant it every time I'd ever told her that before, but this time I felt it in a way I never felt. But then, <laughs> you know what's coming next, dude. Then all, the, the, all of the really challenging, difficult emotions that I had pushed away started coming. And not just in that session. Over yeah. the next four years that it was feeling all the grief and the pain and the sorrow and the sadness and the shame and the guilt and all of it. Um, that's the journey, you know? That, that is the journey. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I'd like to kind of go into that more. One thing I, I, I'm curious about is people slingshot, right? They have this amazing transformative experience on MDMA or psilocybin or ayahuasca or whatever it is. And they're like, everything is different. And then, you know, two weeks later, everything is kind of mostly back to the same uh, as it was before. Is that something you experienced and how did you navigate that? Uh, 100%. There's a term for this you'll see um, is spiritual bypass. You'll see people who like will have amazing peak experiences, especially ayahuasca, uh, but on any medicine, have this peak experience and they'll focus on the peak and then not kind of do the rest of the work. I, I, I cannot tell you how many sessions I would come out of and think, oh, that's it, I got it all, I'm healed. And then like two weeks later, I might be way better, but a lot of my old patterns were still there, right? And here's the thing, on that medicine, in that feeling at that time, I was probably right. I was at least healed from whatever the thing I, like I was. Uh, but um, what I had to unpack, this is kind of an advanced thing too. Like I had to go to a couple of my, I've had some really good mentors in this space. And it was very troubling to me that like, I felt like I was feeling all this emotion, but not getting a lot of behavioral change. There was a period where that was true. And what um, one of my mentors said to me is, listen, there's two different ways to heal, right? And you need both. One is feeling the stuck emotion, right? The, the, the emotion that's stored down, pushed away. You've, you allow it up, you feel it, and then you can let it go. But you can do all of that if you don't address the behavioral patterns, the, the, the neuronal connections that those emotions created for 40-something years. Then you're, you're often going to go back to the same behavioral pattern. Right. So this is why psilocybin is so effective. It's like the multi-tool of psychedelics because it doesn't just create space for emotion to come up. It also, uh, in a very real way, resets a lot of behavioral patterns. Right. Like it resets the default mode network. And ketamine can also have a slightly different but somewhat similar uh, impact. I had to realize that emotional release. And processing, though important, 
is only one of two steps. I also had to reprogram extremely old pathways. And some of them were really easy. Like there were certain things that were like one session done, never did that again. But things like for me, anger, man, anger was hard. I'm still not fully off that program. Now, if I, if I used to yell at whatever, 10 times a day, I'm down to like once a day now or twice a day and the intensity of the yelling is way down. So like big change, still not fully out of all the old suboptimal, less than optimal negative behavior patterns. But like that is definitely a thing where I'll see people who will focus on one or the other because like usually the thing that they're good at or they like the most, like, you know, like very airy, fairy spiritual people will focus on all the spiritual stuff and it's like, well, okay, you're like, you haven't done any of the behavioral or, or people are very analytical or logical might focus on the behavioral stuff. All right, I'm going to organize my life so I don't ever have to do that. But then they don't actually deal with the emotions. It's, it's an integration of both to be the most effective. Using anger as an example, but feel free to use any of them. It's like, how have you reprogrammed those patterns? Because like that, this is, this is the doing the work, right? Like the drugs are going to make you feel the feels. Like you can try and fight it all you want. Eventually, if you take it off, it's going to overpower your ego and you're going to feel the feels. But doing the reprogramming is something that I don't think a lot of people talk about. So if you can share what you've done and any tips on that. So I'll, I'll tell you, a lot of people don't talk about it. There's two reasons. One is they don't know how. Uh, but the other thing that I've realized is talking about this to people who haven't started on the path just seems like gibberish. Like they don't get it, right? Or the or they'll go into the, there's a certain type who are like, you know, the, um, like Tim Ferriss uh, was, you know, the, the, the process optimizers. Oh yeah, okay, I'll do this and this and this and I'll have a perfect process. And it's like, and if you don't feel your feels, none of that shit's going to work. Like it's going to work, but it's just going to push them further down. It's going to make it worse. So um, I, I usually don't talk about that. Like I, I wrote Beginner's Guide to Psychedelics. I didn't talk about that distinction in the guide because that is getting people from I'm thinking about it to doing. Once you start doing it, like there's a whole different guide to integration that comes after. But I think you kind of have to start. So I'm with you. I think that's why a lot of people don't get it. But what did I do? The first thing I had to do was recognize that these are patterns, right? Which if you're doing psychedelics, usually that, that will come up, but I just see it. Then what I had to do for me, anger is a great one. I had to really, man, I had to get serious about wanting to make the change, right? Because like in most men, myself very much included, anger, men and women tend to use anger differently in a lot of ways. Not always, but often. And men tend to use anger as a way to feel powerful in the face of an emotion that makes them feel weak, right? So uh, if like shame is coming up or guilt or weakness or some sadness, instead what will come up is anger. And like I am 100%, that's me. Because it, not, it doesn't just chase away the shame, it push away the shame, it, you feel powerful, right? It is actually in certain for certain people at certain stages, anger is healthy, right? Like if you're stuck in shame and guilt, anger is a move up. Like it is an actual level up on a consciousness scale. So like, it's not like all anger is bad, no. But like, if you get stuck in anger, you know, then you're Alex Jones, <laughs> whatever, right? Like it's not a, it's not a super high, it's not a super high level of consciousness. It is better than, than the lowest levels, but it is not great. And so, um, so to move past it, what I had to do was first deal with it, all the stuff that anger's coming, uh, anger's coming to tamp down. And once I did that, then I had to, when situations would come up when I would normally get angry, I had to be very, very intentional and conscious about making a different choice. Right? So let me give you a really simple, straightforward example. So you know, my wife has her own set of issues, right? And uh, the places where our issues overlap are like, uh, you know, those are like where you get the big fights, right? That's the explosive fight. And so um, she has boundary issues, totally, like a lot of them. Um, and uh, she, as a result, she's not very good at respecting my boundaries, the kids' boundaries. Not because she's not trying to, like, it's not disrespectful towards me. It's her own issue. You know, early on, I, I, I would take that as very disrespectful. Like, man, 
fucking she would take my fucking razor that I use for my face and use it to shave her legs. And which I'm sure you know that ruins the razor. And then I'm like clawing my face up with, what the hell is this? Man, the f- I asked her once nicely, hey, listen, explain why. Like, don't do that. Here's why. Like, there's a reason. I'm not just being a dick, right? And she's like, oh, okay. And then like two weeks later, I'm like, what the? F-? She, I'm like, did you use my razor? She's like, oh yeah, I forgot. I was like, the fuck? And like, I got kind of... But then it happened again, like a month later, and then I'm throwing shit around. Man, I like I was, I got lit. Long, long story short, uh, once I did enough emotional work, where things weren't coming up, like uh, like her disrespecting my boundaries was not disrespecting me, and I don't need, to, I I didn't, it didn't need to go on this path, right? Once I had dealt with that emotional stuff. The, pa- the, the pathway is still there. So what I had to do was like, okay, she just broke a boundary. Let me go outside. It's still an issue. Like, I'm not just going to forget it, right? But let me go outside, go for a quick walk, take a deep breath. I have every right to enforce this boundary, but how I enforce it is where I want to make a choice. So I'm going to go back in and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring this up to her and I'm going to discuss it. And I'm not going to yell at her because I don't... I don't need to chase away my shame because this is not her disrespecting me. This is her having issues dealing with her own issue. And it is impacting me, absolutely. And I can be very direct about this and I can tell her what I need and I can work. But I, if I yell, I am just repeating a pattern I have told myself I know I don't want to have. Right? And dude, that's so easy to say. Oh, before you do it, just stop yourself. That's so easy to say, man. That is not easy to do. It is not. Especially with your wife. Like, it's, it's much easier for me with my kids than it is with my wife. But even then, man, even two weeks ago, we were on vacation. And, like, my daughter, I, she wanted to go to this toy store. And I took her to the toy store. And it was closed. Because I thought it opened at 10 a.m. It didn't open until 11 and I'm like, baby, I'm so, she was so upset. I'm like, I'm sorry. Obviously, like, like, let's go do something for an hour and we'll come back. Cause she'd been asking, you, you know, kids are, can we go to the uh, toy Can we go to the toy store? Can we? And then we went to like somewhere, got a coffee, did like, we did something for like five minutes and then like left the place. Like, can we go to the toy store now? Is it, is it open? I'm like, the fucking store is not open. Why do you keep asking? Oh, dude, she just melted, man. Because yeah. she's five and a half. And right. I was like, oh, fuck. Look what I just did. Yeah. And then, you know, like I had to first give it some time because she's going to. And then I apologize to her and hold it. This daddy made a mistake, you know. Because um, when you see that, then it's like it's much easier to stop yourself when when you don't. You suffer a lot. Yeah, there, there's there's a lot in there. Um couple of things I just want to touch on is like your comment about like anger being sh- better than, than shame, you know, kind of a step up, not better, but a step up, I guess, and kind of the emotional growth. And, and it's right. It's like, yeah, it's like even recognizing that you have uh, an entitlement to be angry. I mean, that's some of the things I've struggled with, right? Which is like, if you don't, if you don't love yourself enough to realize you get to be angry when someone violates your boundaries, you got to work up to just being angry, right? Like that is a step in the right direction, even though most people in our society thinks like, if you're anger, you've got problems, but or if you've got anger, you've got problems. It's like, no, anger is legitimate a lot of the time. Now, the level of anger, you know, blowing shit up and throwing things, you know, it, it's like something's in there, like you identified, like there's something about, you know, your boundaries being violated, probably particularly with a woman um, violating those boundaries that just set it off to another degree in, in your head. And I've got my own different ways of experiencing that. And so like, it's important that like a anger isn't bad in the first place. We need to recognize that B, you know, expressing anger is actually in many ways, a form of self-love and then C there's still a lot of stuff to unpack in that anger to make sure you're dealing with it and working through it uh, appropriately. And I think the other thing, and this is something you shared with me and probably one of the most powerful insights um, that anyone has shared about me, which is no one causes you to do anything. You are wholly and exclusively responsible for your own emotions. <clears throat> and it, you know, isn't that a mind bomb, man? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's 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 lot. It's like when when someone says it, you're like, 
yeah, okay. But then to like let it just like all yeah, the way. The like implications. Di- let the implications sort through and all of a sudden your whole life's different. Yeah, totally. And and how, you know, just being conscious about how you express that, being like, when you did this, you made me feel that. And it's like you think you're just kind of recognizing it, but there's the subtlety of that, which is no, as soon as you said you made me, as soon as you believe you made me. Uh, then you're not responsible for your own emotions. Someone else caused your emotions, but no one else caused your emotions. Only you, and and that's been such a such a incredibly powerful insight for me. Not always easy to express and articulate, but like when you let that in, it is it is is such a tool. When did when did that become an awareness for you? Was that through the work with psychedelics? Right, right. I I don't want to take credit for for this. It's like I'm some genius who pulled this out of the ether that no one's ever thought this before. <laughs> I, I read um, the book called Nonviolent Communication in College, right. and I didn't. I thought I understood it, but I, I, I didn't. I read it about a year or two after I started psychedelic therapy, and I realized I did not understand anything in that book. I had missed literally everything that Marshall Goldsmith was trying to say, right. and now I finally got it. And uh, the the basic premise of that book is that almost all problems, especially violence, are people who who incorrectly believe that that their problems are, especially their emotions and their feelings, but that their problems are someone else's fault. Once you really start to unpack that, it's like first off, he's right, but then the implications are like, oh man. I mean, it's like one of those total mind-bending things. It's easy to say that, you know, oh, yeah, you you take full responsibility for yourself and your life. And, like, it's easy to say that intellectually. But to really unpack, like, like just my wife using my razor, right? Oh, dude, part a huge reason why I was angry is because irrespective of my, let's say, issues I have uh, below the anger, shame, et cetera. But even after I'd worked through all that, I was still getting angry because I was still blaming her for how I felt about her actions, right? It's, yes, she violated a boundary. Yes, she shouldn't have. I'm not excusing any of that or saying that that's not, doesn't exist or we want, no, 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 no. That's all valid. That's all real. She did that. She broke a boundary. She, uh, uh, there's, but my reaction, my feelings about that and my reaction to that are my responsibility and my choice, not hers. When you really start to unpack that and you really start to apply that to your life, literally everything, nothing's the same, nothing. Because so much of our culture is based on the idea that someone else is to blame or is responsible for something, right? Whereas like, if you really embody the idea, no, I'm responsible for my whole life and how I feel, like, and no one else is. That doesn't mean like, you know, if I paid the yard guy to do the work, he didn't do the work. Well, I'm just responsible and that, (laughs) come on. It's so much deeper than that. Um, It really is like, this is at, at the core of, Buddhism, Christianity, all of the great avatars have always said, like the t- two of the major messages. One of the major messages is it's up to, it's your life. It's up to you. You know, like there's a, a lot of consent. I want to go through all of them. And man, I prided myself for almost all my life of being so highly responsible and so accountable and never being a victim and never or thinking like a victim, you know, like, yeah, like someone can rear in me. Okay. Like, like that, that exit, they hit me then. Yeah. Okay. But like not having a victim mindset, when I really started asking myself, when I really started noticing how many times did I say you made me feel or blaming other people for how I felt or what I did, I realized I had that stuff. I had a victim mindset through the threads of it at least were through, you know, half or more of my life. It was so humbling, man. And then to start pulling that out was painful. It was difficult. I hear you. <laughs> totally resonates with me. And that's why that insight uh, that you shared with me, you know, has been super powerful in my life. And and my wife, Stephanie, you know, she, I, I don't know if she can take credit for it. Probably not. But she shared something where she said, 
uh, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And, and that's kind of the same yeah, thing. Buddha it's said that. that. Is that, was that Buddha? Buddha? Is that Buddha? Yes. Okay. I don't know where she got it she, from. She's quoting one of the great all-time avatars. Well, dude, half of, not half, probably 90% of what I said, I've just stolen from someone smarter or older than me. So yeah. She's right though. She's a hundred percent right. That is, ab- pain may not be your choice, but suffering is. Yeah. And, and, and it's so interesting because like I put that actually on Twitter and, and like the vitriol from some people, some people say absolutely. And then other people get really, really angry. And, you know, you touched on wokeism earlier in the conversation, but you know, you and I have had a lot of conversations about that from a business perspective, but I'm going to assume, uh, but clarify, it's like that, that, you know, thread of victim mindset is, is, you know, what makes wokeism such a, a dangerous kind of mentality, you know, and, and we've done a lot of work here and I've come to recognize that um, we talk about trauma informed care and it's like being aware of other people's trauma is a great tool. You know, it can be very respectful, but as soon as people blame you for whatever they're feeling, it becomes a, a problem. And, and, you know, mm-hmm. that nuance just gets lost, which is I, I'm hundred <laughs> percent. And, yeah, no, I mean, like, I, okay, let, let's actually, if you, if, if I talk about that in relation to wokeism, it's like a double charge thing because now it's responsibility and wokeism, right? So let's make it simpler. Parenting, trauma from childhood. And like, let's take, my parents are a really good example because like they never hit me. They, they never did anything that they were told was wrong in terms of trauma on me, right? Yeah. They protected me. I always had faux food, clothes. So like, and I, I'm like, I'm always pretty careful to say, like, like they were not bad people, you know? Like, if, if you're hitting your kid, that's messed up. Like, you know that's wrong, you know? But, like, if you're just not emotionally connecting with your kid, okay, yeah, that's messed up too. But if you don't understand it, like, she, my parents, they were, they had a lot of their own emotional problems. No, they didn't address any of them. So, like I said, they, they were pouring out of empty cups, so I had nothing. Right. Okay. Now here's the thing. They did all that. They were that way. But today, and this took me a long time to work through. I used to blame my parents for my problems. Totally. Even when I thought I wasn't deep down, I kind of was. But what I realized today is yes, my mom, my mom left to me as a kid. Right. But that's not my fault. I didn't do that. She did that. But it is now my responsibility. And if I am still feeling that way, meaning feeling uh, all this sadness and all these issues because of what she did you know, 40 years ago, I am now the one who's actually carrying that forward, not her. Now, it's not my fault it happened, right? That distinction is extremely difficult for, for let's say, um, People who've suffered real crimes. Man, I, I, I'm going to tell you a story. Like, I can't use her name because she's not public. A friend of mine, woman, uh, was raped. Suffered from it for a long time. Therapy didn't help. Found psychedelic medicine. And it was you know, MDMA. And it was amazing for her. Like all the studies show she was incredible. Now, this is about three years ago she started. Now she's at the point now where she says the same things I say about my mom and my parents. She says about her rapists. Like, yeah, like he did that. That was horrible. That was wrong. But everything after that pretty much was me carrying it forward. She would either, she, it was one of those things where it brought it home to me where I thought, oh yeah, like I really understand this responsibility stuff and I really understand owning it. And I'm like, no, I'm not sure I did. Cause I, like I was trying to project myself in her space and I'd be like, I'm not sure I could have had that level of consciousness about it and and accountability and responsibility but here she is now and she's like it's how i found psychedelics it led me to uh, unlocking all kinds of other stuff and i'm not sure i would have done on my own and i'm just like man that's amazing so one of the things i want to do uh, in this conversation uh, which we don't often get to do, but I also want to be respectful of your time. So I want to take the last few minutes we have together uh, is to to turn the lens back on me, which is we've been talking pretty much every week with some gaps for a little while for uh, almost two years now. And, and you've been a great source of advice, inspiration, guidance. And, you know, I'd love to hear as awkward as this is probably going to be what you've seen 
change in me over the last two years of, of talking together and, and going through my experiences and, and all that kind of stuff, if you'd be open to sharing? Uh, so when we first talked, this is my characterization. Sure. But um, you just felt like an anxious mess. Like you had 50 things and there was like just shit going everywhere, right? And um, which makes sense. Like if you, if you didn't have someone to talk to about that, then like these things compound and they pile up. And, and if you don't deal with them, then that, you know, it's like, like you can have technical debt in a software company. It's like having or, or financial debt, you know, or not. Uh, it felt like there was a lot of unpaid emotional debt. Uh, in the simplest terms, it feels like you are now, you now have a, a balanced account. Like you have dealt, it doesn't mean you've dealt with everything in the past, but it just means none of your debts overdue. You know, like you have dealt with so, man, like a lot of people, like the classic anxious, uh, sort of one of the classic anxious behavior patterns, which I don't see you hardly do at all anymore, is like imagining things that could happen and go wrong that haven't yet or aren't. Right. And then that, and like, yeah, yeah. if you imagine, oh, I got a, 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 a nail on my tire, I should probably do something about that. Okay. Right. But like, imagine it and not something that hasn't happened and, and then not do anything about it. Right. Man, you used to get yourself into these fucking vortexes of and this and this and this. And then what if this happens? And what if she says this? And, and then she said, like, especially on your wife and kids. And like, if I do this and then, and then like, literally, it would be like, if this happened, like, if I bring this up with my wife and then you would go through a chain of logic that would end at, I'm going to die alone, broke. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, dude. <laughs> Hold on, let's back up. And, and, uh, and getting, uh, all I really did was help you identify that thought pattern. And then once you saw it, you were like, uh, and then you would like, you do now, you'd laugh about it because it is patently absurd once you actually see it. Like, I totally understand why you do it, but, and, and then, Seeing it, plus uh, the work, the emotional psychedelic work and other stuff you've done, I don't see you hardly do that shit at all anymore. You know, maybe you just hide it from me, or maybe it's happening so deeply you're not even recognizing it. But I don't see any of that. The other big thread, and I say this with all love uh, and respect, but just to be raw and honest about it, you were kind of a fucking coward when we first, especially about talking about your emotions to other people. You just were, in fact, I, I shouldn't, you had enough courage to come to me, which was great. But like, other than me, it felt to me like at the beginning, like, man, this dude just won't tell anyone anything. Like, like he just eats it all. Right. And then, you know, you would keep it in and then it turns on these spirals. And now it feels like, like, you'll just be like, you're just going to put it out there. Like you will let it rip. You know, like if you feel something, if you need something. You're going to tell the people in your life uh, what you need, you know, and you can handle that now, right? Because, like, you know, if, I can understand why for certain people that might be, hard, especially for with your background, why expressing your needs and your actual beliefs are very threatening to you because you grew up in a situation where the truth could get you cut off from your supply of, of love and of uh, money, right? And so now you're in a position where you've long been in a position where that wasn't true. But now you've started to own that and to, to be actually courageous. I don't want to say that because obviously, like, you did a lot of things that required courage. So it's not like you had none. It's funny. A lot of people think, like, physical courage, business courage are so uh, praiseworthy. And they are. In my experience, both for me and what I've seen, emotional courage seems the hardest thing for almost everybody. You know, like, I don't mean this to put him down, but like, or let's talk, keep it on you. You'd already built several successful companies <laughs> and yet you were afraid to tell your wife, you know, whatever, something like that you need something from her, something like that, like a big deal. Like, and, and that's not a put down on you. That's just to show like a lot of the things that people think are so hard are actually not the things that, 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 that people like you and I struggle with, you know, that like, in fact, part of why we're so successful over here in business is so we don't have to have the courage over here. And now that you've, you got both, it's been very cool to watch you do that. 
and to kind of work up that courage. And it was definitely slow at first. They're like you, we would talk one week and then it's like the next week come back. You're like, all right, well, I thought about the conversation and, but here's what I worried was going to happen. It's like, okay, Ronan, you got to actually have the conversation, brother. Like all the people I've seen that do psychedelics and seriously go into it and seriously do the integration work, they become self-healing. Like, you know, like our bodies are, if you give them the right inputs, they're self-healing, right? And almost everything, right? Um, I think our minds and our emotions are like that too, if we treat them the right way. And you went from totally not self-healing to all you need from me now is just a, little, a few course corrections, you know, uh, like uh, that, but I, you've become, and rapidly, it wasn't, I mean, one t- session a week for two years and right. And it wasn't even, so it's like probably 75 times we talked. So let's call it like like 40 hours of talking, basically. So imagine a, a full-time job for one week is really all it, all it took for me, which is really isn't that much. Listen, man, I'm super grateful for it. Um, you know, uh, one of our first conversations or very first conversation very early on in our discourse was like, I had this awareness where I was sharing a lot of very personal stuff with you and, and, and vice versa. <laughs> and then I took a step back and like, is Tucker my friend? And I even asked you about that because I like, I, you know, it was such like a, an abstract thing. And, I, you know, in so many ways I couldn't conceive, um, and this may sound absurd to a lot of people listening, but I couldn't conceive how someone of your stature, your notoriety, your success uh, would consider me a friend. Uh, it, it was like, it was completely Which is dumb. 100% about you. It's nothing about me, of course. Totally. Yeah, right. Totally. Yeah. But uh, that's why, you know, I, I, I mentioned that in the opening kind of discourse, which is like, that's actually meaningful for me to, to count you as a friend and be able to be open about there was actually confusion about that on my part initially. And that is almost the crux of so many of my personal, of all the work I've been doing in, in, in so many ways. So just do wanna, I deserve this? Yes. Right. Whether it's your beautiful wife or your successful company or having cool people as friends, do I really deserve this? Like that. And that's a wound that comes from a wound in you. It has nothing to do with anything external. Totally. But I still want to thank you for all the time you've put into it, for being a friend, for being an inspiration. I mean, honestly, like listening to you talk about it, especially because like in so many ways, you're like a macho guy. I am not a macho guy. And to see someone with that persona come out and be so direct and so honest and so open about this has been super inspiring for me. So I just want to thank you for all of that and for all the work you're doing. I think you're, you're making a, a great mark in this world and anything I can do to support you, let me know. And, and I appreciate all the support to date. And with that, I'm going to thank you for joining me today. You were the first person I asked about this and uh, you're definitely not going to be the last person on the podcast, but it really is a great, great opportunity to share this with you. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks, brother. If you had asked me whether I would have anything in common with Tucker Max, the I hope they serve beer in hell number one best-selling author, Tucker Max, the person whom German reporters have described as the most American person they've ever met, Tucker Max, the person who got kicked out of a South by Southwest party for throwing bags of pop chips at a ceiling fan because it was juvenile yet hilarious, Tucker Max, I would have said, dude, are you tripping? But life has a funny way of going about things. And I'm here to tell you that even though in so many ways, the expression of our experiences in our lives is different, Tucker and I actually have a lot in common. We are both products of divorced households. We are both products of childhoods in which on their faces seem pretty typical, but that one way or another resulted in us experiencing a level of neglect. We are both people who took the anxieties and issues of deservability that resulted from these experiences and turned them into action, ultimately turning the insatiable hunger to feel, quote, good enough into successful businesses. And lo and behold, we are both people who, through plant medicines and beyond, are working to change the narrative around mental and emotional health and well-being and psychedelic therapies. Now, I'm sure there are countless people out there who judge Tucker and probably judge me for having him on the podcast, for supporting Tucker, and for considering him a friend. 
and that's fine. The thing that has always amazed me about Tucker since meeting him is, despite being vociferously opinionated and unequivocal in his beliefs, he is also very willing to respect yours and not hold judgment against you for what you believe in. In that way, whatever you think about him, Tucker Max is a person that forces you to hold a mirror to yourself and assess who you really are. And if there's anything more psychedelic than that, I haven't seen it. As a quick reminder, please follow, rate, and review our podcast and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producer is Conrad Page and associate producers are Macy Baker and Alex Sherman. Special thanks to our production partner, Quill, and of course, massive thanks to Tucker Max for joining me today. To dive into his work, visit TuckerMax.com.